Mark chapter 1, verse 16. And passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they left the nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And straightway he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2 and verse 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the place of Toll. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that he was sitting at meat in his house, and many publicans and sinners sat down with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and publicans, said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then chapter 3, and verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. And he goeth up into the mountain, and calleth unto him whom he himself would. And they went unto him. And he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. We have come now to the second major division in the Gospel according to Mark, which I have entitled, The Servant of the Lord at Work. We have already dealt with the first, The Servant of the Lord presented. Now, this division which we're looking at tonight is the largest division of Mark's Gospel. From verse 14 of chapter 1 to the 52nd verse of chapter 10. A pretty large uh, portion of the Gospel according to Mark. It is made all the more difficult because there is no easily discernible grouping of the incidents recorded here with any kind of teaching design in mind. In other words, Matthew, he collected and recorded his incidents with a very real design in mind. Uh, we might learn from them, but Mark didn't do that. Uh, we, it, it's not at all easy to find uh, any uh, uh, apparent uh, grouping of the incidents uh, together. Nevertheless, as I think we've said before, by means of the atmosphere of rapid movement, of an incessant service, um, 
a very living and vivid impression is made upon us of the kind of service Christ gave and the kind of service the Lord would bring you and me as his children, saved by his grace, into. So I have entitled this, The Servant of the Lord at Work. It may seem a little trite, uh, such a title, uh, The Servant of the Lord at Work, but it seems to me to be the most comprehensive and satisfactory title for this uh, division. We not only see the servant of the Lord at work meeting people's needs, freeing them, delivering them, healing them, feeding them, uh, and so on. Uh, and we not only see him, as it were, fulfilling the desire of God, uh, the desire inherent within God's heart, that we human beings should be free that we should be sound, that we should be healthy. God has no desire, of course, for disease or sickness or sin or any of that kind of perversion. His longing is for, uh, for us all. We would have been saved from all of that, but we're in it. And here we see we have the most wonderful revelation in Jesus Christ as the servant of the Lord, of God's original thought for man, not, not disease, not evil spirits possessing and binding, not anything dark and perverted and corrupt at all, but the heart of God uh, revealed. But we have not only got this kind of uh, 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 service, we not only see the Lord at work, meeting people's needs in this way, revealing God, but we see him also at work calling and appointing others to share with him in this service. That surely is incredible grace that he should uh, want you and me, the likes of you and me, to share with him in this service. And we see the servant of the Lord at work in calling certain men, in appointing certain men to be with him, in training them through all the vicissitudes of his very um, uh, rushed and busy ministry. Here we have it all. We see the servant of the Lord at work, revealing in himself the character and the nature of true service. That's why I've entitled it The Servant of the Lord at Work. It seems to me it covers um, the, this section uh, well, this division. We ought, ought also to say, before we have a closer look at it, that um, this division covers the ministry or service of Christ in Galilean district, that is from this verse 14 right through to the 50th verse of chapter 9. And then we also have his service on the road to Jerusalem for his last week of ministry and his supreme service when he gave his life on the cross. That is chapter 10 from verse 1 to verse 52. Now I have said that there is no easily discernible grouping of the incidents here 
in this section. So you will find in the notes, when you get them, that we, in certain cases, we don't try to just look at a certain few verses, but we cover a certain number of incidents. Uh, and uh, you'll find out what I mean when you get the notes. Well, now, the first thing, if we take uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and starting at verse 14. From verse 14 of chapter 1 through to chapter 3 and verse 12, we have the servant of the Lord himself. That is the first thing we see in this great division. The first person we look at is the servant of the Lord himself. In verse 14 and 15, we have the beginning of Christ's service. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You will note two things. First of all, the Lord's actual ministry or service began after the arrest of John the Baptist when he was taken into custody. And secondly, you will notice the emphasis on the word gospel. Now, if you look at the other uh, uh, two gospels, Matthew and Luke, you will notice that they give the same incident, the same, they tell the same beginning of the Lord's ministry without the word gospel. So Mark evidently is emphasizing something for us, that here we have the servant of the Lord with a tremendous work on hand, the preaching of the gospel. And you know, the preaching of the gospel is tremendous work. It is tremendous. It's not just words we say. It's a life that we live. It's a nature that we have. And Jesus Christ not only proclaimed the good news, he was the good news. As you looked at him, you saw the good news of God in that one. You saw it all over the place. He healed people. He delivered people. He freed people. He met their material needs. He took charge of their whole life, as it were. You could see this good news of God not only in the words that he said, for his words were truth, but in his very being, though he was truth. Not just what he said with his lips, but what he was himself. I am the truth, said the Lord Jesus. He was the good news. It's rather lovely when we get it put simply like this. He came preaching the gospel of God. What an amount lies behind that one phrase. Whole of the Old Testament lies behind that simple phrase. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. Indeed, if you take it from here, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. You've got the whole Old Testament almost comprehended. All those prophecies about the herald of the Lord, all those prophecies about the Messiah himself coming, and all those wonderful pale types and prefigurings of the gospel, the good news of God, which was finally to come with the Messiah, the beginning of Christ's service. Then we have from verse 16 to verse 20, the call of the four, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. We have the call 
of the four. Now, in a very real sense, what we have in these verses, which we've read earlier, what we have in these verses underlies the whole of this division. The whole of this division, the servant of the Lord at work. There are three things I want you to note. First of all, in verse uh, 17, follow me. Follow me. Only two words. Yet everything, I cannot emphasize it enough this evening, everything in the Christian life and in divine service is summed up and comprehended by these two words. You'll never get beyond it. Every, you can judge your Christian life by these two words. You can judge the service that you think you're rendering to God by these two words. The Christian life is explained, is summed up in two words. Follow me. True service is summed up in two words. Follow me. Service isn't doing what you think is right. Service isn't going where you think you ought to go. Service isn't trying to meet needs that you think ought to be met. Service is following him. That's real service. The, the rest is human activity. There's plenty of it in the religious world. People running about, harem scarum all over the place, doing all kinds of things. Lord is not part of most of it, I'm afraid to say. Follow me. Now I want you also to notice this. Let me put it this way round. The right way round. Me. Follow. Me. Jesus Christ is the central factor in the Christian life. And Jesus Christ is the central factor in true service. If he has not got his place, we cannot be living the Christian life. If he hasn't got his right place, we cannot be offering service well-pleasing unto God. Me. And then that word, follow. Me. We don't follow a system. We don't give our loyalty to a system or to an organization or to a church or even to a teaching. Our supreme loyalty is commanded by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me. All our trouble in Christian work today and indeed in so-called church life is false loyalties. People talk about not leaving sinking ships and all the rest of it. It's an amazing state we're in. It's all bound up by this word, false loyalties. Our supreme loyalty, if we're going to know the service of God, is to Jesus Christ himself. Me. We don't follow things. We follow 
Christ himself. Not even Christ plus Moses and Elijah. There are many who would like to have Jesus Christ plus Moses and Elijah. You know, it's here in this very gospel. They went into a cloud and they feared exceedingly. You remember before that they had said when they saw Moses and Elijah talking with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, let's build three tabernacles, said Peter. And this is the only gospel that says not knowing what he said. He didn't know what to say. So dear old Peter, never lost for words, said the first thing that came into his head and exposed his heart. Words always mean something. You know, people say, I didn't mean that. But they do, in fact. They give the game away again and again because they expose even our subconscious attitudes. When the cloud came and they feared exceedingly as they entered into it, when it lifted and they heard that great voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. They saw Jesus only. No more Moses, no more Elijah, only Jesus. Some of us want Jesus and Wesley. Some of us want Jesus plus George Fox. Some of us want Jesus plus Darby or someone else. Or lots of others I could mention speakingly. Or, or Luther or others. But it's Jesus only. Me. And then I want you to notice this, that it's follow me. What does following mean? It means that you walk with him. Now this is a little point we'll make here. That in the East, very rarely do people walk side by side. They tend to, to walk one behind the other, or just behind. And therefore, when the Lord said, follow me, really he meant, walk with me. Yet, it has come to mean much more than that. It has come to mean, rightly, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration and arrangement, it has come to mean the, the relationship between master and servant. Master and disciple. Follow. Now when we follow, we go after somebody. We follow in their footsteps. We tail them. <laughs> we follow them. We go after them. So Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay? Here in this same gospel. Now, this following is not, a, not, is not just a matter of sentimentality. These kind of lovely hymns we sing, follow, follow, I will follow Jesus. And uh, we get all sentimental about it. We're going to go into the blooming gardens, and then we're going to go into dark valleys, and then we're going to go into the, uh, down into the depths, and then we're going up into the heights, and it's all very sentimental and all very lovely. But following is not a sentimental thing. It's not just something we can um, get poetic about. Following costs everything. If you and I would follow Jesus Christ alone, it will cost us everything. Jesus said it, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That is, Christ's cross made personal to you. Not your aches and pains, or relatives, or someone else, but uh, your boss or your job, 
but his cross made personal in your circumstances. Follow me. He that would lose his life for my sake and the gospel's the same shall find it. And he that holds on to his life, the same shall lose it. That's what it means to follow. If you follow Jesus, you may take a few steps in the right direction. Sooner or later, you'll come up against the cross. It's either self or denying oneself. It's either cross or evading the cross. You will come to it sooner or later if you're following Jesus. It's a question of hanging on to your life or losing it. Oh, don't think that in some emotional decision early on in your life you can settle once for all everything. Thank God there are times when we can lay our feet down at, the, uh, uh, at Christ's feet. We can lay our lives down at Christ's feet. Thank God for that. He takes, it at, he takes us at our word. But don't ever think that you can't take that life back again. Oh, how many who've gone on with the Lord have surreptitiously taken back their life again. And it's back in there uh, under the old management. And there's all the trouble and the sadness that comes from that. If you and I would follow, sooner or later we come to the cross. We find it again when, the, when Peter said, Lord, we've forsaken all to follow thee. Even they had forsaken everything to follow him, and truly they had. Yet they didn't really know what it meant. They had forsaken things, and I would not for one single moment deprecate this evening or even give an atmosphere where the forsaking or giving up of things is, is, is little. It's not. How true it is that our purse is often the last place God touches. And the key to spirituality is the way we can let go of things. Nevertheless, like those dear disciples, you can have left your home, you can have left your nets, you can have left much, but when it comes to the cross, it's too much. For it's not a question of forsaking. It's a question of bearing. It's not just a negative letting go of things and giving things up. But it's a question of positively taking up your cross. And sometimes we can't face it. But let's remember this. That to follow him doesn't just mean a cross, dear child of God. To follow him means glory. That's it. And if you're not prepared for the cross, you will not get the crown. And if you're not prepared for the suffering, you will not get the glory. And if you're not prepared for the rejection, you shall not know the marriage union. It's the measure in which we are prepared to follow the Lord in his, in his way, in his history, if you like, in his steps, that will mean that we go through an open tomb to an ascension and to an eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Follow me. There are no truer words than the words that uh, John records for us when he, speaking about the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying, he said this, 
And if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be. Isn't that wonderful? Where I am, there shall my servant be. Through the cross, through the losing of one's life, into resurrection life and glory. Well, we can even have a touch of that down here, thank God. Not meant to go around with a long face and just all the time thinking about the tomb. We can have plenty of touches of glory down here. We wouldn't be able to bear it otherwise. And God touches us with joy unspeakable and full of glory to enable us to go on. Life again. God is unto us a God of deliverances and unto Jehovah the Lord belongeth escape from death. Again and again and again we know it. Winter, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And spring and summer and autumn and winter and spring, and summer, and autumn. So it is the way with us. Follow me. So we can certainly say this evening that we have here in these two words the most fundamental factor in service. Follow me. It runs right through the whole gospel according to Mark. Now, there's not one of you here this evening, even if you've only been saved two or three hours, that can't understand what I've said, surely. There must be something dreadfully wrong with me. If you can't understand these two words, follow me. That's the key to your life. Make it the motto. However young you are in the Lord, however old you are in the Lord, those of us who are older in the Lord have sometimes got to get simplified and brought back to absolute but profound simplicity. Follow me. And those of us who are young, here is the golden key that opens every door in the Christian life and every door in service. Follow me. If the Lord opens a door, no man can shut it. And if the Lord shuts a door, no man can open it. So here you've got it all. Everything comes out of this living relationship, this trusting obedience, this forsaking of all other and giving to Christ alone our supreme love and loyalty, this complete identification with him. It all comes out of this. Follow me, living relationship. Follow me. It means forsaking all other and giving to him our supreme love and loyalty. Follow me. It means complete identification with him in his whole history. And follow me. Now listen to this. It is the obedience of faith. For I dare to say that the reason few people can really follow the Lord is they're not prepared to trust. They think they know better how to handle their lives than he does. And if once they were to give their lives over to him, he'll do some dreadful things in their lives. Oh, it'll be awful. So they want to hang on uh, to their lives. Well, now another little point we ought to just make is this, that the Lord never asks us when he says, follow me. He never asks us to do anything that he himself has not done. So remember that. 
It is following him. He has gone before. And you can be sure of this, that whatever problem you're in, whatever the difficulties there are, whatever the suffering, whatever the loss, whatever it is, he has gone before. And he knows it in a way that you and I will never, ever know. Fathomless depths he's plumbed. So you're in safe hands. No matter where you're going, how you're going, you're in safe hands. Well now, the second thing I want you just to see about these few verses is uh, make you to become fishers of men. I will make you to become fishers of men. Mark those words. I will make you to become fishers of men. Now there is some art in fishing. Now I have to tell you, I know nothing about fishing at all. But there is some art in fishing, for I have friends who are fanatical fishers. And there is, I am repeatedly told, some real art in fishing. You don't just throw a line in with a worm tied on the end. There's some art in fishing. You can't just learn fishing overnight. Christ promises that he will make us, if we follow him, he will make us to become fishers of men. We'll start sometimes, thank God, we can be a very young fisher of men, but we land a big fish. It doesn't amaze me, you can land quite big fish though you're young. But to, to become practiced in fishing, it's a becoming. The Lord's got to train us. He's got to watch over us. All here. Now, isn't it interesting to note that the Lord doesn't promise us, uh, uh, he does not promise here, I will give you joy. Okay. Follow me and I'll give you joy. No, he doesn't say that. Or he doesn't say, follow me and I will give you satisfaction. Could have done. No, doesn't say that. Or isn't it, follow me and I will give you fullness. Could have said that, but he doesn't. Or, um, follow me and you'll be, I will give you self-fulfillment in a right way. Could have said it, but no, he doesn't say that. What he says is this. He promises something for God and something for others. In other words, he will turn your life into such a conformity to his own that it is for God and for others. I will make you to become fishers of men. That is true service, the bringing of men and women back to God. And I want you to notice a third thing. Immediately they left all and followed him. Immediate faith and obedience. Oh, wouldn't it be marvellous? We all talk about dear Peter being impetuous, impulsive and a lot else. But at least we can say this for him. He instantly obeyed. Wouldn't be where he is tonight if he hadn't got up and followed the Lord immediately. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. How wonderful it is when we can rise up and follow the Lord just 
like that. No dilly-dallying, no dithering, no excuses, no fathers to bury, no wives to comfort, no fields to be looked after, no oxen to be tried at the plough, no excuses, no evasions, immediate faith and obedience. How that shames us all. When I think of all the buts and the whys and the wherefores and the, the rest that most of our lives are made up with, why, we say, Lord, I'll go the whole way with you, and the next day, whoosh, we've taken it all back. What a lot of trouble we have one way or another. They left their own resources. You'll note that. They left their nets. Those nets for those fishermen meant their whole livelihood, their whole income. Wherever they went, providing there was water, uh, and it wasn't the Dead Sea, they could get fish with those nets. They represented their very livelihood and their income. But uh, you see here what it says? They left their nets. That is, they left their own resources, and they launched out onto Christ. From then on, he kept them. It's rather interesting, really, as fishermen, later on, when they came to the feeding of the 5,000, there were two little fish there. I suspect there was a smile on some of their faces when they saw those... Why, the Lord provided more fish than they probably had done in many a catch for that great crowd of 5,000 men alone. And a little later, when he fed the 4,000, there were seven loaves, and we're not told how many fishes, we're just told in a number of little fishes. What a lesson they had. Well, now, that, that's, we have that in those verses 16 to 20. We move on to the rest of this section, and I have called it the example and illustration of true service, servant of the Lord at work. Now, there are three things that I think we see in all the incidents between verse 21 of chapter 1 and verse 12 of chapter 3. I've summed them up in these... Um, under these three headings, authority, compassion, and readiness and availability. Authority. Now, as we look at the Lord Jesus, the example and illustration of true service, there is a majestic authority which seems to breathe through every action recorded in these verses. Now, it, it'd be almost impossible for me to start. I can give you one or two. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. They were always quoting their sources. There's a great thing in Jewish teaching is to quote sources. You quote this one and that one and everything else. To make sure that you're not sort of caught out by anyone. But he taught them as one having authority. That is, he didn't quote any uh, sources at all. He just taught them uh, as he taught them. With great authority. And then you see in verse 27, when he cast out the spirit, commanded to be quiet, they were all amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching. With authority he commands even the unclean spirit, and they obey him. Authority. You've got it again in chapter um, uh, 1, verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. 
and he would not permit the demons to speak. There's effortless authority. Fancy, he just stopped them from speaking. Making him known. Just told them to be quiet, shut up, be silent. Uh, chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 41 and 42. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Effortless authority. Chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rode and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Chapter 2, 27 and 28. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Authority. Chapter 3, verse uh, 5. He looked round at them with anger, greed at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Effortless authority. Verse 12. Or verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Effortless authority. Now, it, it was certainly that authority which stunned the spectators. You've got it. It breathes through all these incidents. Everyone was stunned. Whoever is this? What effortless authority? He doesn't shout. You know, sometimes some of us, we do naturally tend to feel, and I'm the worst one to talk about this, that authority is lifting up your voice and bawling. You know, but there wasn't that about the Lord Jesus. He, he was effortless. The greater the authority you've got, of course, the quieter you can be. Simply says, and it's done. Absolutely like that. You've got this amazing authority. Now, it doesn't matter how we look at the Lord Jesus, right through this gospel, you'll see authority on every page. Yet it is the authority of his Father vested in him through the anointing. The authority of God given to the Son, the servant of the Lord, in his anointing. It was the authority of, the, of God. And so for you and I, well, we pass on. The next thing I just want you to note about this illustration, example of the servant, was there, there's compassion. Now, we mentioned this before in our introduction. There's nothing merely dutiful about Christ's service. No mere holy correctness. What a lot there is about evangelical service. Holy correctness, that's the only word for it. Icily right. Distant, dutiful service. Keeping the letter of the law. Just doing exactly what is required of you in the Bible. As far as service goes. That's not service. God says, I don't want anything of it. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no holy correctness. Merely. No icy rightness, merely. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a warmth, 
a compassion, an involvement with men and women. Now, don't tell me that there were not a lot of spongers, that there were not a lot who tried to get round him. In all those vast crowds, I bet you there were some hypochondriacs. They flew to him like bees to honey, to try and sort of steal the limelight and all the rest of it. Oh, the Lord Jesus, he knew them all, and he loved them all. You were, what was at the root of all these various problems and everything else? You've got compassion. His service was the expression of genuine love, easily moved. Only love can be moved. Genuine love, easily moved, sensitive, involved. If you look through here, you'll find it again and, the, and again. There's no cheap mechanical service here, no sort of slick divine salesmanship, no miracles on a conveyor belt. I think some rather thought when he says the whole city gathered at his door that it was just like a conveyor belt. One after another they just got saved. They just got miraculously healed and delivered. Not so. I believe, I really do believe this, that every one of them cost the Lord something. If it wasn't for the divine resources, he would have been dead. We've got it contained when the little woman touched the hem of his garment. He knew it. Something had gone out of him. Think of that. Think mechanical or cheap here. But this, this is compassionate, sir. This is involved, sir. This is why some of us, when we get into the service, are almost afraid to give ourselves because we're afraid of what it costs. We feel drained. We feel exhausted. A self-preservation takes over. Keep away, keep away. Well, I'll give you two examples. We have one, of course, chapter 1 and verse 41. Um, and uh, moved with compassion or pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. And then, of course, in chapter 3 and verse 5. And this is an extraordinary um, incident. He looked round, around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And that's an amazing thought. He, he was angry, but he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. So much was the compassion in him that he was sorry for them. That they could be so hard. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. And then we have an availability, which is another thing we see about service in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot but be impressed with the availability of Christ at all times. There's no fixed clinic hours, no trade union times, 44-hour week, the Lord Jesus. When you see this story, it is incredible. Even when the disciples got so worn out, they begged him, send them away, Lord. And they made the excuse, because of yourself. Because it wasn't that at all. They were worn out. Availability. We have it. Chapter 1, verse 32, 33. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. The whole city was gathered together about the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. We have it again. Chapter 3, verse uh, 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and then from beyond the Jordan, from about Tyre and Sidon, 
A great multitude, hearing all that he did, came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For it healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever unclean spirits beheld him, they fell down before him and cried out. Availability. I wonder whether most of you have realized that from in the first chapter, from verse 21 to verse uh, 31, you have one day. That was just the Sabbath, and the, by Jewish reckoning, and by our reckoning, Gentile reckoning, then you have just one complete day, because at sundown, that was the end of the Jewish Sabbath, uh, he started all over again. So this whole thing is just... Peter, if it was Peter, has impressed upon his mind that first day of ministry at Capernaum with the Lord Jesus. And really, he recounts for us a sample day. And for him, it was the first day he ever saw the Lord Jesus at work. And you see, you've got it here, Capernaum, they went to the synagogue, he talked, preached, then the unclean spirit, then he cast out the unclean spirit, then he went for a little rest into Simon's home and found Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, very ill with the fever, healed her, she got up and served. And then the whole city gathered at the door for the evening. So that gives you just a little um, idea of availability. And this, I'm afraid it finds us all out, is a, an aspect of true service. Availability. Readiness. When we come to chapter 2 and verse um, 13 to 17, we have the call of Matthew. And we have the reiteration of the call, follow me. Now this is surely not without significance. Now, once again, in this small uh, number of verses, we have the reiteration of the words, follow me, and the same result, he, went, he got up and left. Now, of course, we would have called, uh, I suppose some would be a bit upset by it, but we would have called Matthew a civil servant today, um, uh, an established civil servant. Got all the security, pension, and all the rest of it, you see. So, uh, it, in a way, it was just as hard, if not perhaps more hard in some ways, for Matthew just to get up and leave the office. Especially as, generally speaking, it was a somewhat lucrative business, tax collecting. He was, of course, as you, I think, all know, an income tax inspector. Uh, he got up and he followed the Lord. Now, the disciples were beginning to learn uh, what it was to follow Christ. And Matthew is now called and obeys. They had little idea of what it was going to entail. But at least they were obedient. I wonder how many of us know. Uh, some, we don't need to know everything. We can only trust the Lord. To be obedient is the vital thing. In simple trust they followed. In the end, that is worth more than all the theology in this world put together. 
I don't care how many theological seminaries there are in the whole world that are fundamentalist and sound. You can put all their theology together, stack it together from heaven to earth or the other way down. And you will not have anything one whit more valuable than obedience. Obedience, as far as God is concerned, is of more value than all the knowledge of the Bible in the world. They rose up. They followed. They had no idea what it entailed. And indeed we have a hint of it in the verses that follow in verse 15 when it says, and there were many who followed him. Oh, it was quite the dumb thing at that point. It was one great success story. So they were all following. Great crowds, publicans and sinners, layabouts, and I don't know what else. They were all in on it. Following the Lord, it was quite the thing at that point. Great crowds followed him. You had the same in chapter 3, verse 7. Great multitudes from Galilee followed. Tremendous crowds. It wasn't just the disciples who were following. Great crowds were following too. There were many mixed motives. There were many superficial decisions. Many people, no doubt, giving their little testimonies on the way to one another. I left everything and have followed him. Oh, the air was filled with this kind of talk. But there were mixed motives. There were decisions that were superficial. In the end, they were all to be sifted. And the result? was 120 true followers. Out of them all, 120 tried and tested followers of Christ. That was the sum of his ministry. I dare to say that if we were to sit the church tonight on the same basis, and we're to see indeed what the sifting that's taking place as far as heaven is concerned, we would see precisely the same thing out of the thousands upon thousands who say they're following the Lord. A tiny handful of those tried and tested followers. Then we have two other interesting things that I'd like to mention from verse, in this same chapter, to verse 18 to, to verse uh, 22, I have entitled this, you'll see in the notes, The Following of Christ, Newness. Newness. The Following of Christ, Newness. Now, the people came and to Christ and asked why his disciples were not following the old traditional, well-tried and perhaps scriptural forms of service. They took it up in this way, why do you, your disciples, not fast? Everyone else does. Everyone else does. Why don't you fast? The Pharisees fast and John's disciples fast. And he's supposed to be your herald. How come that this old, well-tried form of service we can't see with you? The Lord answers in the most extraordinary way. He says, when you've got the bridegroom with you, you're not going to mourn. And then he explains it. 
by saying this, you don't put a bit of new unshrunk cloth on an old garment or you get a worse tear than ever. He explains it further. Don't put new wine in old skins or they'll burst and you'll lose both the skin and the wine. That's interesting, isn't it? The skin and the wine gets lost. And then he explains it even more. You put new wine in new skins. And what was the Lord trying to say? He was saying, following him leads us into a new order. A new order altogether, something altogether different to the Old Testament with its organization and special days and special people and everything else. You're in something altogether new. New wine, new skins. Now, many of us have got the new wine, but not all of us have got the new skins. And I'm not talking about the one you'll get one day at the resurrection. <clears throat> We've got new wine. We're trying desperately to contain it in the old skin. What happens? We lose the new wine and the old skin. Better to have the old skin with the old wine. <laughs> really is much better. And you'll keep both. Old wine and old skin. You'll keep them both. You try to put new wine in the old skin and it'll burst the old skin and you'll lose the new wine. Now there's a lesson there for everyone. If we could learn it. Service for God. Following him leads us. We've got to be able to adjust. We've got to be ready to adjust. All the time it's new wine but new skin. How we need to learn this. Again, if you turn in my Bible over the page, but I don't suppose it will be in yours, from verse 23 to 28, we have the same thing put in a new way. Now, I put it like this. Following Christ, compassion before regulations. Oh, by the way, it goes through to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. That section. Verse 23 of chapter 2 to verse 6 of chapter 3. Compassion before regulations. Now, here we've got the same thought expressed in this passage as in the previous. Now, the Pharisees ask, why do your disciples not meticulously observe the Sabbath? And the Lord answers by emphasizing the fact that man was not made for the sake of rules and regulations, but rules and regulations were made for the well-being of man. As he once said, I must have raised a wry smile in many one of those old Galilean farmers, when you're the donkey in the ditch, you don't bother about it being Sabbath, do you? Go and get the poor old donkey out the ditch. Many of them had a chuckle. And they thought of those Jerusalem wise heads. Didn't know the first thing about donkeys or ditches. <coughs> the fact of the matter is that rules and regulations were made for the well-being of God's people. Not God's people made in order to keep rules and regulations. Moreover, Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Messiah, Lord of the Sabbath. Now, lest we should get this wrong, Mark wisely gives us an incident. Because some of us might say, oh, that means no law. We can do anything. See? I want to do this, I want to do that. I can quote this and quote what Lance said about rules and regulations being for our well-being. Well, I feel my particular well-being would be along this line or that line or the other. So I can excuse myself. 
but he gives us an incident, and here we have it. Here is the story of a man with a withered hand. Now, there is a very old tradition in one of our oldest um, uh, apocryphal gospels that this man was a plasterer. Now, it may not be true, it may be true, but the fact was that if he was a plasterer, he needed both hands. That's the point, and he got a withered hand. Something had gone wrong, somehow, his hand had withered, and therefore his whole livelihood and everything else was gone. And this man was in the synagogue that day with his withered hand. Maybe he was very down that day, I don't know. But you see what happened? They watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, the point the Pharisees were making was this. Quite all right, he can heal him, but let him heal him on Sunday. Or let him wait till sunset and then heal him as he leaves. But he mustn't heal him between the hours of Sabbath. That was the point. They were... They preferred the man to be unhealed and the rules and regulations for Sabbath left unbroken rather than that the man be healed and Sabbath regulations be disturbed. In other words, here we've got it, regulation or compassion. Which? How much Christian service is regulation? Think about it. Go away and think about it. I dare to say we find it amongst ourselves. Regulation before compassion. But the Lord says, this is really what he says, God's heart is such a heart of love and such a heart of compassion that he would break any regulation to meet that need. He believes that's supreme. Compassion before regulations. Well then, in closing, the last verses from chapter 3, from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. I have entitled this, The Disciples Appointed to Be With Him in Service. The Disciples Appointed to Be With Him in Service. We ought to note the fact that Christ did not immediately appoint the Twelve. Now, have you, only two people in the questions that you're answering, those of you who are answering questions, uh, made this point, that the Lord only appointed the Twelve. And I asked you about with Him. That point, what do you learn from the phrase, He appointed them to be with Him? Only two people said, and I feel it's excellent, only two people said, that the Lord could have appointed them at the beginning, but he didn't, he waited. Now that's a very, very big point. Lay hands on no man suddenly, said the Apostle Paul to Timothy later. Let every man be proved. Now you may say, yes, but these were going to prove that they were failures. Right, but for their own sake, the Lord waited back. He called them and they obeyed. They left their nets. They left their, their homes. They left everything and they, and, they, and they followed him. Now, when it had become a little more apparent what was involved in following him, not just the great success and the glamour and the romance of it all, but the time and energy that was involved, the incessant life of activity, that was involved. 
the wholeheartedness that was required of them in following. When it had become a little more apparent what was required and the first signs of real opposition had started and they had seen it, he called them to be with him, those he wanted, and he appointed them. I think that even then, not one of them had any idea of the sufferings, the rejection, the cross, all of which was in the future. They had not one single idea, I'm sure. They thought, we're going to have a bit of opposition. It's going to be a lot of time and energy in this, but thank God, the kingdom's going to be restored to Israel. And we're going to be there in the glory. We're going to be part of the government. We're going to be the new Sanhedrin with Messiah as high priest and king. Had no idea that there was a Gethsemane, that there was a Calvary, that there was a garden tomb. Not one single idea. Well, we have the appointment of the twelve. They had been called to follow him and they had obeyed. Now they were appointed better than the authorised version ordained. It's only the very ordinary word to make or do. Appointed to be with him. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and Luke chapter 6, verse 13, you will notice that the words with him are left out. The other gospel writers don't put them in. Mark makes a great point of this. He appointed the twelve to be with him. That's why I asked those of you who are doing the questions, I asked you about this. Significant. What does it mean? It's most interesting and significant that Mark puts it in. They were appointed... Not first to preaching, nor to have authority to cast out demons, but supremely they were appointed to be with him. It's the old thing again. Follow me. To be with him. To be his companions, to be his co-workers. I say there could be no greater privilege... If the Lord had appointed them just to go out preaching, marvellous. If the Lord had appointed them and given them authority over the powers of darkness, over Satan, over hell, marvellous. But what greater privilege is it to be appointed to be with him? Only incredible grace could give them such a position. You and I, vile sinners, Worthless, really, faithless, unfaithful. Given enough evidence of that, haven't we? Such as we should be called and appointed to be with him. Sharing his service. Now this meant, this being with him, meant surely not only the joys, the success, but the sorrows, the suffering and the rejection. And surely that goes to the heart of true service. The Lord doesn't want people who just want success. 
He wants people who know how to go through the, the hidden history that brings eternal success. Any other kind of success is superficial. It comes quickly and passes quickly. But the kind of success that is eternal and forever is a success that has a history behind it. That's what the Lord wants. It's this close communion, this intimate and continuous relationship which determines the quality and character of our service, being with him. These twelve were appointed to be with him in the most close contact for three years. They ate with him, they slept with him, they worked with him. They were never apart from him. Even when he came to Gethsemane, they were with him. And he took three of them right, as it were, into the holiest place of all. But they fell asleep. That's how much he wanted them to be with him. Even in Gethsemane, he longed for them to be with him. I've often said it, we have very little account of what happened in Gethsemane. If one of them had kept their eyes open and their ears open, we might have had a much better account. We've got just a few little snatches of what happened in that garden, enough to tell us a story of, of, of terrible anguish. We don't really know what he prayed, because they fell asleep. We too are called and appointed to be with him in his service, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Now here's a big lesson all of you have got to learn, those of you who want to serve the Lord. You think you can carry the Lord where you want to. You know the idea, he's with me, he's with me, he's with me. So you do what you will and you say, please Lord help me, please Lord help me, bless me in this, bless me in that. That's the kind of service many of us indulge in. But that's not the service that God has in mind here. First you must learn to be with him, and then you'll find he'll be with you. First you learn what his work is, and then he'll work in and through you. There's a great difference between working for God and working with God, in the work of God. So here is a very big lesson for us. <coughs> you and I want to take up this, being with him. Why, why does this gospel start like this? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And why does it end like this? And he commanded them that they should go everywhere and preach the gospel to the whole creation. And it ends this, they went forth, the Lord being with them. With them, because they were with him. Oh, what a subtle difference there is in running here, running there, doing this, doing that, all over the place. May the Lord teach us what it is to be with him. Many would share his service. Many would share his success. Many would share his increase. But without the spiritual history and experience, which is vitally necessary. That alone can come by being with him. We shrink from the cost. We want Christ 
without the suffering, without the rejection, without the loneliness, without the trapping, without a Gethsemane, without the cross, without the tomb. But we cannot share his service if we are not prepared to be with him all the way. So however much work or activity is involved in service, however much preaching, however much conflict with the powers of darkness, let us all remember that the supreme thing in divine service is that we should be with him. And if you keep that before you, you won't go far wrong. Well, now we must close. Just let's finish with two things. You'll find it in the note more fully. The first is this, in the last verses here, in this chapter 3, 20 to 30. The binding of the strong man. Now, what's that? The scribes mentioned here were a kind of investigating commission, an official investigating commission sent down by the temple authorities in Jerusalem. And their findings were that Christ was demon-possessed and that his authority and power were satanic. Christ answered them by asking, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if the satanic house is divided, how can it stand? And then he comes to the root of it. We generally think the root of this passage is the unforgivable sin. But the root of this thing is here. The Lord said, but if you, if you, you don't bind the strong man, you can't take his goods. But if you first bind the strong man, you can take his goods. You can plunder them. In other words, the Lord was saying, I have bound the powers of darkness so I can free all these people. Executive action. We don't know what it costs the Lord. We do know this, that he retired a number of times to the place of prayer, even when it meant going without a night of sleep, in order to get to grips with what was behind. So it must be with us. You want to know what it is to be with him, you read those wonderful words, sent out to preach, send out, thank God for that, to be with him, send out to preach, send out to preach what? The gospel, as he. Wonderful. And to have authority to cast out demons. Thank God for that. Divine authority in the name of Jesus over the powers of darkness in our terrible conflict with them. Thank God for that. But you must learn that authority is not just a facile thing. You must learn how, and I must learn, how to use it. First, bind the strong man. The last little point is in from verse 31 to 35 and it's just this matter. Obedience to God's will produces warm and intimate relationship with Christ. It's very beautiful, isn't it? With him, Christ's service came out of the most intimate relationship to God as son to father. So true service on our part cannot be a matter of mere technique or knowledge, or even zeal. It's got to come out of a warm, intimate relationship to Christ. 
How can we have that warm, continuous relationship obeying and doing the will of God? That's how. You know what the Lord says? Whoever does the will of God is my brother. Now, can you be closer than that? Whoever does the will of God is my sister. Can you be closer than that? Whoever does the will of God, if you're a little older, is my mother. Do you know that you can enter into a relationship with the Lord as close as brother to brother, sister to brother, mother to son? How? Oh, you see, by being born again. Ah, ah, just wait. Yes. Legally, it's more than being born again. Doing the will of God. There are many who don't know any close relationship with the Lord Jesus because they don't know what doing the will of God means. It's doing the will of God that counts. Well, that brings us back once more, doesn't it, to this, my word, we're face to face with stark realities. Follow me. Follow me. It comes again and again through the whole of this uh, passage, or the passage we've been doing. Follow me. Appointed to be with him. Shall we pray? <clears throat> now, beloved Lord, we do pray together that in thy mercy and grace, Thou wilt bring every one of us to the place where we know what it is to follow Thee. There are issues in every one of our lives, Lord, where there's not been a following. Excuses, evasions, dilly-dallying. Lord, we pray for grace tonight to be done with all that and to follow Thee, whatever it means, in simple trust, obedience, just to go through with thee. And we ask it, beloved Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.